You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On Wednesday, November 15th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a book talk event with Diet for a Small Planet author Francis Moore LePay and organizer scholar Adam Eichen. LePay and Eichen are authors of the recently published book, Daring Democracy, Igniting Power, Meaning, and Connection for the America We Want. Muriel Royer, adjunct professor of public policy, moderated the discussion. Listen in. I'll very briefly give you an overview of this book, which has um, three parts, but mostly falls into two parts. One part, one part, the first part describes the perspective they adopt, which is a very optimistic uh, perspective on democracy. A normative, you know, uh, statement that democracy is good and it promotes good ways of life and it's now scientifically proven that we can live together, act together. It's good for your brain. We can see that in um, MRIs. So you take a normative, clear stance and that's good. That uh, takes us away from the depressing, depressive discourses on the end of democracy, you know, the lack of enthusiasm in the world for democracy. And you say very rightly in your book that it's not... Um, because uh, there's too much democracy that we should be because there's not enough democracy and this is what people feel without having the right diagnosis to put on that. So um, you very clearly assert this normative perspective from an active citizen's point of view and in the first, in the second part you describe the crisis or I'd like to say the poison that has initiated American democracy which as you very uh, neatly described has uh, become a plutocracy uh, where all the shells of the political institutions have been voided, hollowed out by a minority of people, actually a handful of super rich families who with very, very um, determined strategy have actually robbed us I'm not a citizen, but Rob, you, the people of America, of your power of citizens. It's uh, an active, proactive, determinate strategy that led us, that led America where it was left in 2016 with the election of Donald Trump. So you don't mince your words. You describe the situation as highly problematic. Uh, although I should note that you don't incriminate people who voted for Trump because you rightly show that most Americans, the majority of Americans, have common feelings about the problems in this democracy. And so there is ground for common action, which is what you basically show in the second part where you give a wonderful uh, view on the antidote to the poison, which is basically this new... Um, democracy movement which counters and is able to counter the anti-democracy movement that you described in the first part, uh, but with very different means and methods. Um, so you will tell us, of course, more about this, this movement of movement, how um, this has recently invented uh, some new forms of, of uh, public uh, action, commitment, political innovation, democratic innovation, uh, sometimes at the very local grassroots level. And you actually uh, answered one question I had from my, you know, distinct French perspective. I'll ask you a joint question. 
So, uh, with no further ado, uh, please, please tell us more about uh, the poison maybe, but mostly about the antidote that uh, certainly brings us together today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. We are very honored to be here, and we're really thrilled. It's fun to be here at an institute at the Kennedy School, where we have so many heroes and friends. And so I just wanted to call out, of course, Miles Rappaport, who made this possible, and uh, who people we've learned so much from, like Marshall Gantz and Arkan Fung, and, and our friends, uh, Doug Johnson and Catherine Sinking, who I believe is here. Um, we thank you all, and to our very special Jana Brown, who just joined you here at Kennedy, who also helped write our book. Thank you, Jana. So um, my task is first <laughs> to just declare that, yes, we are in a crisis of democracy in this country. Uh, and while we're determined to focus on solutions, we think it's absolutely critical that we develop an understanding of how we got here. So we're just going to spend a few minutes on how we got here. And... Um, so, some time ago, or in fact, much of my life, I've been learning from great thinkers who have taught me that human beings are creatures of the mind. We see the world not as it is, but as we are. And we see the world through culturally formed frames that determine what we can see and what we cannot see. Now, two of them I put up here, Huxley and Einstein, but... Um, there's nothing particularly bad about that if our mental maps are life-serving. But our thesis is that you and I are alive here in this moment, in this country, in which the dominant frame through which we see is fundamentally democracy-destroying. It's fundamentally life-denying. And so we start um, with this spiral of powerlessness. This is the way we're trying to capture the mental map that we absorb like an invisible ether. And it starts from a premise of scarcity, of lack of goods and of goodness, not enough energy, not enough food, not enough goodness in human nature. Because what we absorb is the notion that if you peel away the fluff, it's, it's selfishness, it's acquisitiveness, it's competitive. That's who we are. That's what you can count on. Well, if we believe that about ourselves... It's very hard to believe in democracy, that we can come together, deliberate together, and decide on a path for the common good. And so we tend to fall for simple ideas, and many of us have, that, that there is a magical market, it's what Ronald Reagan called it, uh, to which we can turn over outcomes. It, it will sort out winners and losers for us. The problem is there's no such thing as a um, free market magical or not, that all markets have rules, that ours is essentially driven by one, we claim, and that is do what brings highest return to existing wealth. So wealth accrues to wealth, accrues to wealth, until the last number I saw was that three Americans now control more wealth than the bottom half of us. And therefore, with that kind of intense concentration of wealth, it infects and it disrupts and twists the political process to its ends. So what happens? What happens is that, in fact, more and more of us, you, I think the majority of us, do experience the reality in our lives of scarcity, even though plenty, of, there is plenty. And so, and we look around and it does feel like, yeah, we are really these just greedy little selfish shoppers. And so the spiral speeds up. 
So that uh, that is one piece of the how we got here. But there's another. But the thing is that ultimately this turn everything over to the market, this this government is the problem, this money-dominated election system didn't come out of nowhere. This is, while the ideology has been around for a long time, it really was in the 70s, and we allocate 1971 as the moment where things began to change in American society. And namely, to understand what happened, you have to put yourself in the perspective of 1960s. What happened in the 1960s? Major social progress, civil rights, women's liberation. 20 million Americans went out on the first Earth Day in 1971. Labor was increasing in power, liberal wage going up, and most Americans were quite happy, with the exception of a certain segment, namely the business community, which was, quite frankly, terrified. And it was in that context that the Chamber of Commerce, which is a conglomeration of the biggest corporations in America, asked Lewis Powell, who would soon become a Supreme Court Justice two months later, to commission a memo. And the memo was basically having to answer, how does the business point of view get back into American politics? Because the consensus was that the businessman, and this is almost a direct quote, is the least heard view in Washington, D.C. And that's a kind of outrageous claim now, but that shows how effective this strategy has been. And to give you a perspective into the mindset of Lewis Powell when he was writing this, I'll give you a small taste of it. He said, the free enterprise system is in deep trouble, and the hour is late. That basically those who are fighting against it are seeking to destroy the free enterprise system. They saw this as war. And so what Powell came up with is essentially a 34-page memo that was enacted almost to a T by the business community and also by basically a cabal of a handful of very wealthy individuals from families ranging from the Koch brothers to the Olin family to uh, the DeVos family as well. And they basically put together what would become what what we identify as eight strategies of highly effective billionaires to take back American democracy. And so we divide it into two parts, essentially. One is manipulating the mindset, manipulating the way Americans think. The other one is reading the rules. So manipulating the mindset, let me just make clear, we aren't conspiracy theorists. This is all the public record that we are speaking from. And it's really about the power of ideas here. Um, Well, one approach to putting forth this government, the problem, the market, the solution, is to infuse these ideas through education, from grade school to grad school. Um, The Koch brothers uh, alone have funded uh, programs on 200 campuses. Olin Wealth from the chemical industry, including DDT, uh, developed the entire field of subfield of law, which is called law and economics. In other words, applying the Milton Friedman-esque approach to the field of, of, of economics to the field of law. Um, and so that's one approach, grade school to grad school. Another is simply scale up the impact of think tanks, more of them and more impact. One, just the Heritage Foundation alone in the 1980s came up with a playbook of 1,300 public policies in this mindset. They offered it to the Reagan administration who adopted 61% of these policies. That's another piece of it. Um, But maybe the most effective and destructive is really pretty intentionally delegitimizing government. And how do you delegitimize government? Well, certainly one thing you can do is to just make it nasty. So in, in the 1980s, Newt Gingrich gave a speech in which he said, our political, our political battle here has to be fought at the scale and with duration and the savagery 
of civil war. He used that word. Um, and so that's part of it. And of course, one way to turn people off to delegitimize government is just to make it dysfunctional. So of course, you, you amp up the use of the filibuster. And in 2013, you cause a shutdown of government, which cost the taxpayers $24 billion. Can you hear me OK? Uh oh. Oh, thank you so much for telling me. Did you not hear what I said, or was it just difficult? Oh, thank you so much. What? $24 billion. Also critical. Is that better? Yes, thank you. Okay. Okay, I can do this. Okay, also critical is an invisible shift. And that is that the, the political action it moved, funded by these billionaires moving out of formal political parties. So they're less visible, for one thing. And so um, Theda Scotchpole and her colleague at Columbia, they estimate that 70% of organizational resources on the right now are outside of political parties. And some measure of that is that they estimate that the Koch network employs three and a half times more people than all of the Republican National Committee staff or and its congressional arms. So it's huge. And finally, part of what goes on here is uh, creating then this uh, astroturf action that looks like it's genuine, authentic grassroots, but really the P Tea Party is an example of it, but really is being funded by the Koch brothers and others. And these billionaire families have gotten very well coordinated in their action. It's really impressive. Twice a year, Koch brothers hold a gathering in which a lot of camaraderie is built around this common purpose, and a common program comes out of that. So that's one of the reasons it's so effective. And so when, when you can't manipulate the mindset enough, the alternative is just suppress the ability of Americans who disagree to voice their concerns politically. And so we kind of call this rigging the rules, basically change the way the rules function to make it so that people cannot express their dissent to the views being put forth in this mindset by think tanks, by the schooling, by all the stuff. Essentially, the, the people who are going to be most hurt by this, you get them out of the political process. And then the, the, kind of the most obvious one, anybody following American politics, is just unleashing money to infiltrate into our political campaigns. Um, the, the, basically, since the 1970s, when the modern regulatory structure was put in place for campaign finance, these handful of billionaires and corporations have been chipping away at every single regulation to the point now where we're at the barest bones of any sort of regulation where you can essentially, if you want, spend unlimited money. 80% uh, of Americans oppose this Supreme Court decision, uh, Citizens United, which have basically allowed for corporations to spend unlimited amount of uh, limited amounts of money independently of campaigns. Uh, it was actually the DeVos family that funded that effort to bring it to the Supreme Court. Betsy DeVos, now our Secretary of Education. Um, and it was basically so these Supreme Court cases, so one through litigation. Now, our elections cost $6.4 billion as of 2016, and half of 1% of Americans footed the bill for two-thirds of that. So it's a small group of people funding the massive 
amounts of election. And this determines who can run, who has influence. Now the average American has near zero influence in public policy, largely because of the money that goes into our elections. And this is deliberate assault on our democratic institutions. Corporations, on the other hand, a lot of people say corporations give money uh, into campaigns. They don't really. They do. But really, corporations have found their stride in lobbying. Since when Powell wrote his memo, in the decade that followed Powell's memo, corporate num- the number of firms with lobbyists went up by 14-fold in that decade. It expanded exponentially. And now corporations spend about $3 billion in the 2016 cycle on lobbying. Um, and people say, oh, well, unions and public interest groups, they also spend money on lobbying. As the 2012 numbers show that corporations outspent unions and public interest groups combined 34 to 1 in terms of expenditure on lobbying. So they can control basically all aspect of every single minute policy change because they have people basically for every single congressperson. Um, and, and even changing the nature of lobbying itself. I mean, some of, some of you may have heard of the American Legislative Exchange Council. Um, basically, they create model legislation. They kind of sit side by side with mostly state uh, politicians, and they will draft legislation for them, vote as equals in this conference. They'll disseminate all these model legislations across the state, like voter ID laws, which I'll talk about in a second, or mandatory minimums or other kind of things that weaken the voices of most Americans. And then they'll put it through the states, and then it's the state legislatures who are members of the American Letter Exchange Council will pass it. Uh, this was a big strategy, and basically it's been so successful that they've passed, I think, the equivalent of three to four bills, ALEC bills, in every single state uh, of the Union every year. So basically they're getting policies passed. Really, since 2010, they hit their stride when the Tea Party wave brought in the major- super majorities in the uh, state legislature across the country. Um, and, of course, also... Uh, reducing voting power. The most obvious power play is just uh, beyond just you know, unleashing money in politics and kind of using your money for resources. The alternative is just make sure people who disagree with you can't vote. And you see this across the country with voter ID laws. Voter ID laws are shown to discriminate against people of color, young people, students, the elderly, and people of lower socioeconomic levels. Um, and these are deliberate assaults. I mean, in some places, uh, your gun license is a, a valid form of government ID. Your student, state student government ID is not. Um, for, your, for your university. It's very deliberate. Reducing polling places and gerrymandering. We talk about uh, there's just a conference at Harvard on gerrymandering. The, the way the certain forces have manipulated the lines, gerrymandering has been long, around a long time, but really in, in, in 2010, when the 2010 cycle, it was the results are just outrageous. The, the Campaign Legal Center, one of the big groups that does legal analysis about uh, the state of our democracy, has called this gerrymandering cycle of 2010, the most partisan gerrymandering in the history of the United States. And if you just look at the numbers, Democrats won 1.6 million more votes in 2012, and they lost basically the supermajority of congressional seats. And you see this on a state level, Ohio, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, it's awful. It's basically, it doesn't matter what the popular vote says, you draw the lines in such a way that you have a majority no matter what the wave is. You saw this in Virginia in 2017, the last week elections. The Democrats win the majority for the state house, but they to win the majority of seats. They win the majority of vote, lose the majority of seats. You rig the, if you rig the lines, you rig who controls the legislatures. And there are other preemption laws, which we want, if someone has any question, we can talk about that too, but we talk about that in the book. Um, so, that's rigging the rules. It's depressing. Okay, it's really depressing. <laughs> and um, so we want to make a strong statement here that it is not the magnitude of a challenge that crushes the human spirit. That's a pretty big challenge we just laid out. But our thesis is that it is... You having trouble hearing me? 
Hello. Any help? Okay. Uh, thank you. Please, please tell me if you're having a hard time hearing me. I, I, uh, I could start trying to shout. Um, um, so, we argue that actually what crushes the human spirit is feeling useless, feeling voiceless, feeling powerless, feeling futile. And that is really the key to our, what we're about right now. Because we believe that when people, we have shown throughout our long social history now, when we believe that something is absolutely essential, that it's possible. We don't have to know that it's probable, but just possible. And we can see that there's a way for us to get involved and make a difference, that human beings can do the seeming impossible. We can go in there with grit and gusto and make something big happen. And so that's really our claim here. And um, so we're going to go into the third point there, but in the Q&A, if you want to know how we justify this um, belief that democracy is essential, that democracy is at least possible, we'd love to discuss that in the Q&A. But today we really want to focus on that third point, that we must, yes, see a place for ourselves in this struggle for democracy, or as Hasty, William Hasty described it, as this unending struggle, uh, never-ending struggle. And um, so we'll start describing what um, we then have come to call Democracy Movement, capital D, capital M, and that's me. <laughs> I had just said to Adam before that picture was taken that this is the happiest day of my life. Now, it may have been a bit of hyperbolic, but I was super excited. And why? Because I realized that, yes, uh, there was a democracy movement arising. Uh, I, I had just marched 100 miles, didn't think I could walk 10. <laughs> and uh, so that was the sense, and that was in the spring of 2016. And Adam will explain why I'm so happy. Right. So let's move this out. I guess this, I took some of your speaking. Um, so we were part of this thing called Democracy Spring, which is what was said in my bio, actually. I was the deputy communications director, and Frankie was one of the public pledgers, one of the, the famous people who agreed to march and get arrested. And she was the only one to walk basically the full distance out of all of them, so I'm proud of her. Um, and so basically what it was, it was a 140-mile march from Philadelphia to D.C., and then seven straight days of arrests at the Capitol building to get money out of politics and to fight for to make sure every person can vote in America. Probably the largest act of civil disobedience on the Capitol steps, at least we, we believe in, in at least modern history in the United States, on the Capitol steps, uh, and 1,300 people getting arrested for democracy is quite the endeavor. Uh, we don't know of any other circumstance in which that many people got arrested for campaign finance reform. Uh, the idea is kind of baffling, and it kind of really shook us to our core, thinking that there was something going on here that people are so fed up with the money in politics that we're reaching levels of grassroots movement, not just kind of lobbying efforts, not just anger, but actual movement, a social movement, and this is a major moment uh, for this effort, because this had never really been in existence before. Um, and so we were part of this, this, this Democracy Spring mobilization, and while we were walking, we had long, long conversations, because if anyone's ever been on a hike, let alone a nine-day march, you know there's not much to do other than talk. You can't watch TV, you can't really do much, you just have to talk. And so, Frank... And, and one really funny thing is that I imagine... I. 
that people would be wearing earbuds and tuning out? No earbuds. Yes, everyone was just talking, and so that's really where Frankie and I became friends because we just talked for nine days straight. Um, and then we realized, and we didn't get sick of each other, which is remarkable. Uh, and then we spent a year together writing this book, so that's, you know, <laughs> testament to our friendship. But um, when we realized in talking to the folks, we didn't just talk to each other, though. We talked to, you know, the 150 other people. 150 people marched with us for the full time. I mean, it's an incredible legislative, I mean, uh, uh, logistical feat that happened. And we realized when talking to these people around us that every single person had an issue that they cared about. It wasn't just people who said, you know, money and politics is my main issue. No, no, no. People were there from, you know, I, my number one issue is climate change. My number one issue is livable wage for all Americans. And, and the list goes on. Racial justice, et cetera, et cetera. And we realized that there was some, there's a real shift in, in how people were thinking about democracy. They didn't see democracy as something unique to, or something different, kind of distant from their issues that they care about. They saw it as integral. And you saw this when we inquired more. You know, democracy was endorsed by over 140 organizations that span from racial justice groups to uh, unions to uh, good government groups to environmental groups. And so you saw this kind of coalescing for democracy across issues. And it was really put into words by a friend of ours, Josh Silver, who founded a group called Represent Us, and they're based in Northampton, Massachusetts. And he said, you know, you can love two children at once. I can't say for certain that's true. I do not have kids. Not surprisingly. Frankie does, and she has two. And she says that you can love two children, so I will take her word for it. There you go. Confirms. we got confirmations. So what, what that means in this case is that you can love your issue passion, whether it's environment or liberal wage, et cetera, et cetera, but also recognize that you can love democracy, too, because the two are intrinsically linked, that you can't actually win reform on anything before we fix democracy. Uh, and this is a major shift in our in kind of the, the organizing for democracy, embodied by, you know, we were, we realized this in the spring of 2016. We thought we were so, you know, we thought we were, we were discovering something new. Turns out we were a little late to the party by about four years. Um, and major organizations, some of the leading public interest groups across the country came together uh, in, the, in basically 2012-2013, including Communication Workers of America, Common Cause, NAACP, Sierra Club, Greenpeace, the list goes on, came together and said, we're not making progress on our issues. We're getting killed. We're getting killed by this anti-democracy movement. They didn't call it the anti-democracy, but basically these big money forces, the Coke money, the Coke meaning, you know, Coke brothers, not uh, as little as the drugs. Um, but they were realizing they were getting killed legislatively. And so they said, we need to start focusing on system reform as well as our own issues. So they created this group called Democracy Initiative. And this is basically embodying what we call movement of movements. It's Democracy Initiative is a coalition of a bunch of different groups across issues all agreeing to devote resources to democracy itself. It now has 63 organizations, of which our institute is a member, and it represents 30 million Americans. So quite the achievement of, of movement building. And we're excited to share with you that we, our little Small Planet Institute, and the Democracy Initiative have teamed up to create, with your help, we really need your feedback, really need your, your help, to create an online spot, like a commons, a democracy commons, where no matter where you are, what your interests are, but you understand the problem that democracy is in crisis. And you want to come and find a place for yourself in the movement. So that's our idea. It's just called Field Guide to the Democracy Movement. The URL is just Field Guide to Democracy. It's still not there where we want it to be, but you can find it now. But we're continuing it to, to improve it every day. And, again, we love your, your help on it. So before we go too much more into the, what the movement is actually winning, I wanted to say very clearly, as these numbers show, uh, 
people are, we, we're not starting from scratch here, that people are incredibly angry. Most, you don't have to go up to someone and try to explain the issue. People feel powerless. 82% of Americans believe that the wealthy have too much influence. 85% believe that uh, we need to have fundamental changes in the way we fund our elections. And we also agree on solutions, whether it's disclosure or public finance of elections, which we'll talk about, of which 72% of Americans agree that public finance of elections is a good step in the right direction. Um, and so... I want to talk, we're going to go into kind of real concrete examples of where we're seeing this movement, this movement of movements, winning, right? We talked about the problem and how that we're kind of, you know, on the defensive, but we're not just on the defensive here, that we're achieving actual success on the state levels. And why are states so important? States, for better or worse, are the laboratories of democracy. And the anti-democracy has leveraged this to their credit, passing certain laws in all the different states. They've seen that as a source of power. But now the democracy movement is seeing that we also need to be fighting on a state level, because if we win on states, one, we get more data. So for any of the empiricists in the room, we get data. And we get you know, more momentum, therefore, we show the policies work. We, we have the, the think tanks create the ideas, but once we put into practice, we get, you know, we get evidence that it works. We see this across the country. We, I can go into detail on that. And it also just creates more space for, for people to come together, to build the movement, to, to create across solid, you know, or organize around, along solidarity lines uh, and really kind of foment more and more of a movement that can eventually move up to getting national reform, which right now we're not there yet. And so we've made progress on three categories, money and politics, expanding the right to vote, and then making sure that when votes are tabulated, they carry equal, equal weight. So um, one of the real winners in my book of democracy reforms is the state of Maine, citizens in the state of Maine, because they have hung in there from the first. They were the first to pass in 1996 um, clean elections, meaning publicly financed financed elections. And their chances were like this. Here's what they confronted. The pollster they tried to hire to poll whether or not people would vote for publicly financed elections would not accept their money. He said it would be unethical because they had no chance of winning. And they won 12% with 12, uh, by 12% majority. Uh, so the state of Maine has a lot to tell us. And so it's embodied with one for human being for me, Deb Simpson. Deb was a waitress in a small town of Auburn in the year 2000 when this came into effect. And um, her friends saw a lot of leadership in Deb. And they said, hey, you should run for the state legislature. And they thought, she thought they were nuts. What do you mean? I don't have any money. And they said, Deb, pay attention. We have public financing. All you have to do is get $5 from 50 people, and then you can get support to, for your campaign. She said, oh, I'm a waitress. I can do that. And she did. And she did. And look what she's done. Uh, she was, uh, she's no longer in office. That's another story. But the point is, she was reelected five times. She served in the, in the um, House and the Senate and took, took um, seats of great authority. She was so respected by her colleagues. So one of the things that that may teaches us is the hidden talents of regular folk. And now, and now, the state of Maine has the highest percentage of working class people in their legislature compared to any other state. And now two-thirds of those seated in the state legislature used public financing to get there. So what are the policy consequences? Of course, we can't prove cause and effect. But it's very interesting to me that while a computer and other electronics companies fought this after, what I'm about to tell you they fought, after clean elections, it passed. What passed was one of the first in the country 
a law that required electronics manufacturers to take responsibility for the full life cycle of their products. Uh, so that they would accept them, keep, keep them out of the landfill, and to refurbish, etc. So in the first couple of years, it kept one pound of lead, that one law, kept one pound of lead out of the environment in Maine for every person in Maine. So that's huge. And Maine isn't the only place. So basically, public financing has taken, uh, you know, the different municipalities, counties, states have tried different tactics. Maine gives you, you get, uh, you know, $5.50 for people, and then you get basically your, your entire campaign subsidized. Other places have matching funds. But Seattle is one of the most interesting cases right now. In 2015, they passed a, a voucher program that every resident will get four $25 vouchers that they can give to any eligible candidate. And so 2017 is the first election this past Tuesday or the t last week was essentially the first election in which th there's ever been a voucher program that, to finance elections. And the numbers, I just, I, I saw a pre-release of the numbers of a report by every, the Every Voice Center, um, and they're staggering. They're better than I think I could have ever dreamed of. You see an, a vast increase of small money donors. You see the donors giving are more diverse in terms of all demographics, and they better represent Seattle. Uh, it's not just white, wealthy men giving money. And the kind of the most promising thing, at least in my opinion, is that the candidates who are using these vouchers, basically to get the voucher, you have to agree to not take big money. And they're beating, they beat all three candidates who use this one. They beat back candidates who were backed by big money. So major success coming out of uh, Seattle there. And we'll see as more and more data comes, more and more election cycles. Uh, in terms of the right to vote, uh, a lot of states are implementing vo automatic voter registration. It's a way of streamlining the registration process. Oregon became the first state to implement it in, t in 20, or it passed in 2015, went into effect in 2016, January 1st. In the first three months that they used automatic voter registration, because we know our registration system has a, a class bias among many different biases, that basically the poorer you are, the less likely you are to register to vote. The number of people registering to vote in Oregon tripled in the first three months. Basically, one simple change, and now 10 states have automatic voter registration, plus D.C. One in four Americans live in a state with automatic voter registration. In two years, basically, one-fourth of all Americans have been touched by this program. That has pushed the right to vote in big ways. And Massachusetts will likely be next, assuming we win the fight. Another piece of this is a very basic human rights, civil rights piece, and that is that we are one of the few countries in the world that deny felons the right to vote even after they have paid their time. There are about um, now 10 states in the United States in which felons may never get their right back. And that was true in Virginia, for example, until very recently, and uh, Governor Terry McAuliffe he, he, he tried with an executive order that was overruled, and he personally pardoned, uh, or he personally, I should say, restored the right for every felon in Virginia, including one who touched my heart, a woman of 53, who had been in prison for stealing diapers for her, nine, for her newborn baby. And she could not vote until this action by Governor McAuliffe. Now... Floridians are taking on the challenge that um, in Florida, there are 1.6 million people who cannot vote because they have a felony conviction. And so there is now a campaign called Second Chance that has to collect 770,000 signatures to get on the ballot, and then that has to pass 
but with a 60% vote. So it's a huge undertaking. But when I was there recently, the energy behind it was enormous, and I think it really has a chance. And so the other thing, we just had, again, we just had a conference here at Harvard on gerrymandering. Uh, many different states are trying to tackle gerrymandering. It's pretty difficult. But just to give you an example of one of them, which I know won a prize from Harvard, actually, for this process that they implemented for the 2010 redistricting cycle, is California. And you can just see that it takes, it's about six different steps to basically make it the least biased as possible. Um, and it basically all comes down to, after a bunch of different sorting and a bunch of different striking people off and all this stuff to make sure there's no conflict of interest, basically people are all but taken out of a hat. Uh, and so you can tell that California is at least are trying to make the process of gerrymandering a little more serious and less biased. Um, we can go more into this if you want, but basically just to give you a taste, you know, it, it really is just kind of a stunningly uh, innovative process, uh, and it's definitely, you know, uh, moving things in the right direction. But one of the things that I think is most exciting for us, at least, is that when we handed in the manuscript in about May of uh, earlier this year, is that the movement didn't just stop growing. It didn't, sa you know, just kind of stagnate. It didn't stop. Actually, that when we handed it in, we realized there's so many more things that have just emerged that we couldn't, we didn't have time to include in the book. And one of my favorites, I, I'm totally biased because I love these people. I went down and marched with them, and I consult with them, and I, I, I just, I'm so inspired by them, is, is a group called March on Harrisburg. They were an offshoot of Democracy Spring, and they said, you know, Democracy Spring was national, but all the policies been determined on a state level, so let's bring this back home. So a group of people from Pennsylvania came together and said, let's make a movement in Pennsylvania for democracy reform. So I said, we're going to start lobbying. We're going to be grassroots lobbyists. And then we're going to do a long march from Philadelphia to D.C. And then we're going to just start getting arrested. If they're not going to pass what they think, the three fundamental things, a gift ban, there's no limitations on the gifts you can give in Pennsylvania to Pennsylvania politicians. I could pay off the tuition of a state legislat a legislator down there, and that's totally fine. I give a, a briefcase full of cash, totally legal. Uh, automatic voter registration and gerrymandering reform. They said, we're going to push this. We're going to make it part of this movement. And they were there. Yesterday and Monday and Tuesday, Monday five people were arrested in Harrisburg, and Tuesday they were going to get arrested, but they finally won a meeting with one of the people who was trying to block this reform. Uh, and Democracy Spring is continuing. They're fighting uh, against the, uh, the, uh, was it the Presidential uh, Advisory Commission on Voter or Election Integrity, uh, which is laying the groundwork for more voter suppression. Uh, and, and Reverend Barber, we tell the story of North Carolina, uh, the poor of um, the Moral Mondays movement down there. And, and Bar Reverend Barber is now trying to implement a, a poor people's campaign, revive, reviving uh, Martin Luther King's last campaign, the poor people's campaign, to basically uh, push for progressive policies, including democracy reform. And this is, by the way, speaking of spiritual roots of some of this democracy movement, this is a young rabbi, Michael Pollack who so inspired by his faith that he's the leader of this campaign. Yeah, he turned down getting a stable job to basically do organizing on democracy because he said, this is, this is where my heart is. This is, this is what being a spiritual leader means right now. And, you know, one of the things that we'll kind of, you know, kind of towards the end of our talk here, what we want to highlight is that this work, what we realized in doing Democracy Spring together, and I, I think that this is, you know, I, I always say this, and I, I, again, I think this is, is fundamentally true, that this is why Frankie and I became friends, is because we realized, we, we spent a long time trying to articulate what is it about our work in Democracy Spring, doing that long march from Philadelphia to D.C., getting arrested, doing things together for a higher purpose. Why did we feel like we entered into that space as you know, individuals and then left as different people. We felt that we were transformed by our political action. And here, I think, is the, you know, the key part about this movement is that it's not just the dull spinach you have to eat to get your desserts of personal freedom. Quite the contrary, that the doing the political work for higher purpose is the essence of, you know, human life. 
It is the essence of being part of a democracy, and it's incredibly rewarding. And so we identified three big things. And I'll give the headlines, and then Frankie will kind of explain them. The first is that, frankly, when you're doing work for a higher purpose, when you're doing political work, you meet people who you would never meet otherwise. And that's a remarkably important educational experience. You meet people outside of our geographically sorted, similar bubbles that we live in. So on this march in the evening, we would often hang out in the church basement floors <laughs> before we pulled out our sleeping bags. And we'd get into these intense conversations because we all want to know, why are you here? Why are you here? And so I had this really hard-tart conversation with an Iraq vet, with a former banker, with a teenager from California, the kind I would probably never have had the chance to talk to. And the effect it had on me was, oh... I'm not such an oddball after all, you know, that I felt so much less alone, so much stronger, having met people so different from myself. So that was this number one shift that Adam identified. And the second one is that, frankly, when you're doing work for a higher purpose, you realize that you have power. That even though we, we, we feel so collectively powerless, such powerless, uh, you know, the 75% of Americans believe that they have too little influence in Washington, D.C. right now. People just frankly feel they do not have power. But when we collectively organize, we begin to feel political power. And that's remarkable. As we were approaching the Capitol on the final day, we were walking through the streets of the city. People were honking and waving, and we were chanting, Who is democracy? Our democracy. Who is democracy? And as we were chanting that, the dome of the Capitol building came into focus. And just, I just started bawling. Why am I crying? And I realized I could almost feel these synapses in my brain. And what is happening to me is I say, oh, yeah, those guys in those buildings, they work for me. This is my democracy. And that shift from feeling like the outsider, you know, please, would you do the right thing? No. It, it was just a, an internal change that I hope and I think will never leave. And the last one is just, frankly, when you do something you didn't think you could do, like walking 140 miles or getting arrested or being part of your first protest, that you begin to feel courage. It's, we call it civil courage. It's, it's, it's courage for a higher purpose. And, and that in itself is, is transformative because it pushes you to do the next thing that you didn't think possible. It, it, it pushes us beyond the isolation we feel in the society of powerlessness and other kind of forms of, of um, feeling alienated. And those feelings are part of what makes possible. Um, we're closing now the s- spiral. Um, that's what makes possible the actual reversal of where we began with that red spiral of powerlessness. Because what we're saying is that if we do feel this fuller nature of ourselves, that we're not simply these selfish little shoppers, uh, that we sense that we do have the needs and capacities. It's proven, you know, for deep sense of fairness, of cooperation, of empathy with others, then, then it is possible that we can learn how to come together, deliberate, and to set the rules to bring out the best in us and keep the worst in check. Because we do not do well when concentrated power exists. We know that now. And so that means we can keep private wealth out of its grip on the government. And we can make markets open and competitive so that what happens is that our needs become are met, both our physical and our emotional needs are more met, we can leave behind the blaming and shaming culture, and that can create then a positive spiral of empowerment of democracy itself. So that's really the key here. 
And as part of that, then we realize, and that um, this is the the case we make in the book that. Um, and I loved it when Muriel, you know, said she didn't like the term activist because that sort of sounds like somebody separate. But we're saying all of us, not just the known active citizens, but all of us deep inside, we claim, have a need for a sense of agency, power, a need for meaning beyond our own survival and connection to each other in the earth. And so that leads to the possibility of... of Hope, and we think that Marshall Gans, uh, your own Marshall Gans, said it so well. Hope is a belief in the probability of the possible rather than the necessity of the probable, and so that then we want to close out on this notion of hope because it runs very deep in our work, because we really believe that an eyes wide open hope, not naive, but that takes it all in, all the good, bad, and the ugly of our nature and our existence, that kind of hope is power. And actually, Harvard professors have concluded that <laughs> hope actually reorganizes the brain towards solutions. So it does have power. And one of the mottos of our organization then is that indeed, um, that hope is not something we sort of seek in the evidence out there. It's what we become in action together. Thank you so much. That's the America we know and the America we love. And now go tell journalists and your friends abroad that they should stop covering Trump uh, nonstop. Cover these movements because uh, thank you for bringing such hope and to refocus the problem on action at the, the level of you know human possibility at the level of uh, each individual's uh, measure and uh, and hope because I'm serious in France they, they talk about Trump every day and this this is a depressing uh, two it's inexact because you know you don't know we don't know American democracy anymore. Uh, I think you were very right to uh, insist on the poison at first, because when I, f I read your first part, I felt like I was reading another book on totalitarianism with the hollowing out of the democratic forms. It reminded me of the Nazi party when they took over democracy from within, and with the propaganda techniques that, uh, you know, that have nothing to envy to Putin. Uh, but you you shift the focus and you move the needle very much when you highlight those very creative solutions. So before I open the floor, um, I will just ask you this question that remained very mysterious to me as a French and as an observer of American democracy and of the Electoral College. You're the only people who brought response to my question, why can't we reform the Electoral College? I've had famous historians uh, of uh, the electoral system. I've had my husband, who is a historian. Uh, apparently, the, the way to reform is not the constitutional reform. I got that from your book. But there is a specific tweak that would allow this system to actually function fairly as one man, one vote. I, I don't know if you want to explain that now, but I was so happy to find the answer in this book. You are honestly the only people <laughs> who provide this, this answer to me. Uh, save it for later or answer now. Uh, yeah, we can, we can cover that. Yeah, it, how many of you have heard of the national popular vote at the campaign? Good. A few, a few a num well, all <laughs> my friends. Good. Good. <laughs> uh, Hi, Ronaldo. Um, so, um, the national popular vote really is a, a workaround. 
but it's a very clever workaround, very simple. Uh, and that is that the campaign is getting number as many states as possible <laughs> to commit to assign their electoral votes to whoever has the popular vote majority. And right now, they have enough states to assure 170 electoral votes. 60. Uh, sorry, 165? I think it's 60. I'm not sure. I have to double check. But it only goes into effect. Anyway, it's right in there. And we have to get to 270. It only goes into effect. It's an interstate and in, compact. And then it goes into effect as soon as these are the, the states with that represent that many uh, electoral votes um, have already pledged, right? So if enough pledge to get to the 270, then it would become effective. And so it is very, to me, very practical work around the problem of, because to change the Constitution is such a lengthy task. It's 165. So it's about 60% of the way there. But, of course, now they got the easy states, and now it's towards the, the harder states. But it's definitely possible. Um, and it's a workaround. You don't need a constitutional amendment. Uh, it's just about re states can allocate the electoral votes how they want. So uh, it's a good workaround. Right. Um, so the floor is, is now open for uh, questions. We have one question here and one question there. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, I appreciate first that you laid uh, some ground for our inner beliefs or templates that either support a democratic life or do not. And um, I was working as a uh, psychotherapist in a post-communist country for a long time, and it really struck me how the healing process uh, for people that I was working with was, uh, first of all, that the transition the country was coming, was going through, was arising through people's individual experience, and that the healing that they were undergoing was also laying a ground, an inner ground for democracy, which made them better active citizens. But I think what I want to ask you about is uh, age, because you are intergenerational here. And um, those of us who were active in earlier days uh, are having to brush off our activism and get going again. And many people my age and a little older who may have been active are... Uh, battening down the hatches because this is an anxious time. Um, security matters more than it used to. Long trips to Washington, D.C. are hard on the back. You know, whatever it is that, that, that my generation older is struggling with about security. So I'm wondering, I saw the, the, um, the civil disobedience committers. I was thinking, how is it? How are, what are you seeing in terms of age? Because I'm imagining that some of us older people are going to be turning up more, but that there's a certain process that, that uh, some people are going to need to go through to be willing to put their lives a little bit closer to the line. 
So what are you seeing so far in terms of, of former activists uh, becoming active again, and how far are you seeing so far that they're willing to go? Thank you. Would you start? Well, I, I was so impressed in Democracy Spring that there was really, there were the elders and the younger people. I think there were somewhat fewer, maybe, Rinaldo, you can speak to this, but that middle, middle age, because they still have so many family responsibilities. Um, but certainly, I felt it was much more intergenerational than I felt in the 60s. You know, we had an attitude that I don't feel young people today have about their elders. And, you know, that I felt really included and I embraced. In fact, we had a Democracy Spring. We had an Elders Day celebrated on the <laughs> lawn there in front of the Capitol and, and really honoring the engagement of the elders. And um, is... What do you think? No, I, I think that's exactly right. I think that you know a lot of there were a lot of uh, anti-war activists who showed up for the democracy work, and they and they still are. I mean, a lot of the like, for example, League of Women Voters and other kind of good government groups are oftentimes uh, older individuals. Um, and I think the question that you bring up is really good because I think. But well, I know that there is still a lot of reticence about engaging in civil disobedience. And this is a major shift in, in the democracy world. It really wasn't until 2016. We talked about Democracy Spring, but there was uh, an, another kind of sister organization or mobilization that had 200 groups endorsing it called Democracy Awakening. And the, the, the difference is, is not that important. But basically, originally, the Democracy Awakening groups, which were bigger organizations, didn't want to get arrested. They ended up conceding, and it was a big kind of change. It was a lot of these establishment groups didn't want to get arrested because they thought that would be bad publicity. Um, and it's nothing against them. It's just that, you know, there are a lot of internal politics with insider groups. And so you're seeing that, but you're seeing the change very quickly because you're seeing, you know, like, for example, in Pennsylvania with my friends in March on Harrisburg, that they're, they're talking with folks who would never get arrested, but then all of a sudden they're going up against the brick wall of Harrisburg and against the corruption and against the big money. And they say, well, all of a sudden, you know, the tactics we've used for the last 40 years, one, don't work, and two, we're losing. And it's not even that we're the status quo, we're losing. And so we need to now innovate our own tactics. And you're seeing many people, especially older folks in places like, you know, who, who might be affiliated with League of Women Voters, other places who are much more willing to put their bodies online uh, because they realize this is the fight. That, you know, democracy is the fight of our time in a certain respect because, it, you know, it's only to prevent climate change, right? I just wanted to call out that uh, Ronaldo Pearson is here. He's one of the leaders of Democracy Spring. So if you want to jump in on any of these, you're welcome. Sure. Hello, everyone. Um, thanks. Um, sure, I would agree with the uh, theory of change that you guys just implied, and that is a theory of change that's backed up by history, that every time we've won, see change, push the needle in a radical way, it's been because there's been a grassroots movement that has been willing to put their bodies on the line, from the civil rights movement to the um, labor movement to the women's suffrage movement on on and on. There's always been civil disobedience uh, that has, has shifted uh, the narrative in that regard. Um, you know, there's no, I don't think there's ever going to be a majority of people that are going to be willing to risk their lives uh, in terms of civil disobedience, but I, I'm always inspired by the quote from Gandhi who said that a small body of determined spirits uh, can, can, can alter the course of history. That's all it takes. Um, once we have a small body of determined space, just like those in this room, for instance, Democracy Spring, we had no idea that we would, you know, 
get 1,300 people. We, we shot for it, but we, ne- we had no idea that we'd end up making history, the largest act of American civil disobedience this century, by getting 1,300 to risk arrest. And as Frankie said, it was intergenerational. It was interracial. Um, it was a beautiful scene. I, I remember walking with Frankie to, to, the, to the Capitol steps and seeing that sea of blue. Of, of police officers, and as a black man, not knowing what was going to come of that encounter, uh, but then seeing that sea of blue open up as we approached the steps and, and we sat in and started singing freedom songs to get together, eyes on the prize, and ain't gonna let nobody turn us around. I was singing many of those songs, um, and 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 the, the next day, you know, over 100 uh, next few days, over 100 congressmen, about 100 congressmen, signed a letter urging. Uh, Republican leadership in Congress to uh, have a hearing uh, endorsing uh, the legislation that we were calling for. So that's what it takes. And, and we were building from there to the concessions that we got from uh, Democratic leadership in con- Congress calling on, you know, very strongly all of the pieces of legislation that are on both in the House and the Senate. And we even got a concession from Hillary Clinton. We called for her to uh, yield to the things that we called for within the first 100 days of her uh, uh, administration. And she said the first 30 days on, on some things. Um, and, and then Trump happened. Um, but I, I spoke to that also. I, I still do believe and the facts and data su- suggest that we are in the majority. And if we continue to organize in the way that we're doing now, we will win. Thank you for First, thanks for the terrific talk. Uh, and I wonder if you could just give us some clues from your research to help us bring it home here to campus uh, at Harvard. We, I was just reading data about the last midterm election. 24% of eligible voters at Harvard voted. Wow. And... The graduate students didn't do better than the undergraduate students, and uh, so what? So what? You know. But I also read that in Virginia, this, just this last uh, week in Virginia, youth vote doubled. Yeah, wow. so it Yeah, it didn't double in New Jersey. It doubled in Virginia. So what are they doing in Virginia? Number one, and what can we do on campus so that the midterms we can get a better turnout than you know we than twenty four percent? I mean, we could double it here. And yeah, you know, absolutely. And get up to 48. Adam, go for it. Talk about Democracy Matters. Oh, well, yeah, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about an organization that I work with um, that does student organizing. But before that, I think that, you know, the key thing is that, you know, beyond reform, we have to figure out a way to get people more engaged. Um, and I think a lot of people are, are, are it's not apathy, it's kind of a certain nihilism or hopelessness, uh, especially around young people, about what, you know, what they're voting for. Um, and showing people, I think there really has to be a, a, some sort of effort to, to, to show people that there are choices to be made, uh, especially with the midterms. I mean, here in Harvard, I mean, it's going to be a choice between Charlie Baker, the Republican governor, and whoever the Democrat is. I mean, that's, that's serious legislative change that will come of this election. And so I think, first, it's education. But, two, I think it's, it's organizing. That I mean, at least in terms of, like, I'll think of it kind of from, from student perspective, that there has to be people, people in the student body who are, who are organizing, doing the work to lay the groundwork to mobilize voters, to educate, but also to actually get people to the polls. And from the administrative point of view, I don't know exactly how it works here, but making voting as easy as possible, especially, um, 
you know, on, on election day, um, that makes a big difference. Um, you know, making, I mean, you know, one of the reasons why I'm so excited about automatic voter registration is because a lot of students will be touched by it. Um, because registering students is really hard. Actually, it's, it's really, it doesn't matter where you are, even in Massachusetts. I've, I've never registered students here in Massachusetts, but at least where I went to college in upstate, or mid-state New York, excuse me, I'm from New York City, so everything north of Westchester is upstate. Um, and so at Poughkeepsie, they, they consciously made it hard for students to register to vote. So I don't know exactly how it is here, but the, we have to kind of think, one, on the kind of structural legislative package, what, like how, how are the laws interacting with the student body? Like, are, they, are, are students coming up with difficulties when trying to register, when trying to go to the polling places? But two, then there's the internal politics of like making sure that we have student organizers, a group that I work with, Democracy Matters. There's a, there's a chapter here uh, at Harvard. Um, and so I've been pushing them to do a lot of work with voter registration. But it's not just the registration. It's the education, showing that there's a choice uh, in the elections, and then also uh, making sure that there's, there's serious, syst- uh, systematic um, get-out-the-vote campaigns. Um, and, you know, as, as professors, I think, you know, you, you guys need to think about, well, what are the ways in which we can encourage students to, to, to vote? Obviously, you can't mandate it, but, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly what that would look like. But I think it's a responsibility of professors, too, uh, to figure out, you know, how uh, you, you help your students vote. Um, thank you guys so much for this. Um, so my question is, uh, I, I liked what you said about a lot of these leverage points have to happen at the state level first. Um, and I think that that's also true at the city level, at the local level, and that that's where, um, that's where a lot of people are getting engaged, um, and that's great. And uh, I'm wondering about, like, the challenges to operationalize something that, for instance, like ranked choice voting that we benefit from here in the city of Cambridge, but that has has not necessarily gotten traction at the statewide level other than Maine, of course, where it's now, like, I don't know, put on the back burner. Um, And so I guess my my question for you is about how to translate some of those more local, local innovations to a larger scale, especially when people are just, I think it is a both and and also activist fatigue is real. And so for something like ranked choice voting, how do you get, like, a bunch of young people to show up at the state house for something like that over, you know, like a Black Lives Matter protest? Um, that's my question. Can I get a one-word answer to that and I'll let you talk, Frankie? Okay, go ahead. Uh, ranked choice voting. Uh, <laughs> it's in Maine, and it's one word, beer. <laughs> uh, in Maine, what they did to get ranked choice voting, it made it on the ballot. Uh, and I asked, the, I asked the campaign manager, how, how did you possibly explain something like ranked choice? Ranked choice voting, for those of you who don't know, is basically instead of picking one candidate, you rank your choices. If there's no majority, then the person in last place gets swiped from the ballot. And then the votes get reallocated based on the, the, the second choices for that candidate. So it's basically, you know, it, it's a way of an instant runoff voting, essentially. It's more subtle. It's, yeah, it's, it's much more subtle. Um, uh, you know, they did this in Kosovo uh, at the very beginning when Kosovo was not independent but free, freed from Serbia. So if they did this in Kosovo, uh, they certainly can do it uh, yeah. in uh, American states. Yeah, and so, so the campaign Germain said, oh, what we did is, you know, a lot of big craft breweries in Maine, so we just invited people for, for uh, a free flight of beer. And then all we asked was that they rank it. And then while they were drinking the beer, we did an election. 
and then, you know, they do a fake beer election, and then they teach people how to rank those voting. So you have the people who love beer, you have the good government activists, and you have the people who just go to the breweries. Uh, and it passed statewide. And so that doesn't really exa- answer about how to get a capacity built up, but at least in terms of subject matter about democracy, how do you make these issues uh, understandable? Uh, I think that's a really key thing for scaling up. But, Frankie, if you want to talk about... Well, I just wanted to add on about ranchers voting in Maine. You said on the back burner. Well, Maine, as you know, I'm a big fan of those determined people. And when it was declared that it, it you know, it was a challenge, a legal challenge to ranked choice voting, that somehow it contradicted the main constitution. Well, now the same folks are going back and, and they are and, and they are challenging with an initiative campaign to um, create a fix for that problem it's so a, that they're not... veto, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're uh, it's a, what, override? It's called, the, basically, the legislature, basically, Maine passed it on 2016. Uh, they passed a state, a ballot campaign. They won. Ranked choice voting was going to be implemented. The legislature basically then said, actually, no, nah. And they said, we're going we're to basically strike it from the record. Uh, so they, they basically repealed the law at all intents and purposes. Uh, but in Maine, they have something called a people's veto, where if you collect 60,000 signatures uh, in 90 days, you can stop the veto. It goes back to the ballot, and then you can save the law from the legislature. Uh, and so they're currently in the process. They just, in one day, on last Tuesday, they got 30,000 signatures. They're halfway there um, to stop the repeal. If I may react to both your questions before leaving the floor to you. Um, in, uh, for the first time for the election, uh, for the Trump election, the OSCE, the Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe, sent observers to the American election, which is uh, very striking because uh, Europe and the U.S. used to send observers to faraway <laughs> lands where elections were rigged, uh, they were fraud, we would, we would monitor elections to make sure they were happening okay. And so this was the other way around. Um, and it's interesting, um, to your point, Catherine, that I, I worked for OSCE missions, an election organization in Kosovo and Bosnia-Herzegovina, just after the conflict. And I was uh, really very happy to contribute to, you know, restore democracy. And the way the OSCE um, taught electoral democracy to the people with textbooks and ex- exercises to practice and to understand the rank, you know, vote, we were all, oh, my God, this is complex. And we actually played games, which would be a very good yeah. thing to do here at the university, to yeah. explain the different electoral strategies. And like, guys, if you need the OSCE expertise. <laughs> I love that. Civic education, right? I mean, yeah, like, it that's... Is. No, and it's very important. It's fun. The, the major lesson I drew from this experience is with, like, a bunch of Russian people. I that Americans were really very good at that, <laughs> at, you know, our organizing democracy and, and playing it out so we, we could actually... Uh, understand what it was. So you should play that. Uh, so you had a question, then there was another question here, and then you went. Oh, so I sort of raised my hand and then decided I wasn't going to ask my question, but now I'll ask it anyway. <laughs> um, so uh, I am Swedish living in the Netherlands, and what I was thinking as 
I watch your passion plea for this um, democracy movement is that on the other side of the water, the distrust towards government is not coming from the left, as I'm hearing from you, but from the right. So on that side of the water, I'm part of the establishment. I'm democratic. I support the system of government that is as it is, and I'm happy to sort of keep the status quo, whereas there's a lot of very dissatisfied people on the right um, trying to change that order. So what I'm wondering is how this sense of inclusion that you're um, propagating, if there's any way in which we could sort of apply that uh, on the other side um, without inviting something that will threaten the basis of our democracy, but to make it more inclusive and to sort of not widen the chasm that's already existing. Do you have any ideas on that? Yeah, I'm thinking, go, go for it. Yeah, I think that there's a really difficult line. I mean, I, I think first that what I'll say is that, you know, the, just a, a slight correction is that I, I think that the, the right wing in America is equally as, as disempowered. Uh, feelings about. I mean, the numbers show that it's it's left and right. I mean, I, I was talking. I have a very close person in my life who voted for Trump, uh, and we really can't talk about anything. But we did actually talk about corporate power and money and politics. And on that, he is 100% aligned with I with, with me on this. I mean, it's, it's stunning. And I, and we make the claim in the book that that Donald Trump really was the product of this disempowerment. Uh, that he he was by voting for Donald Trump, you were voting to throw a brick into the Beltway glass. Uh, and I think that. That, that holds. I think that, you know, drain the swamp, you know, his main slogan, the system is rigged. I mean, that, that parallels Bernie Sanders, and there's a reason he did that, because it resonated among his base. Um, and I, in terms of the, the, the right wing, and this opens up a larger question about uh, alienation in, in, in our societies. Uh, you know, it's not just Sweden, it's not just Netherlands, it's also the United States about, you know, not speaking to, that the, the left's failure not to speak to real suffering. Um, now, there's a lot of xenophobia and other stuff that, that, that's here in the United States and elsewhere, and, and uh, you know, that's a kind of different issue, but maybe it's not so different. Um, there, there is a failure not to speak to people's real sense of alienation from society. Um, and some of that in the United States comes from our electoral politics. Uh, in Sweden, it's a different story, but it certainly is probably maybe more, a little more economically based. But I think the left has failed on that, on that level across the world to really speak to people's disempowerment. We have a question? Yeah? Uh, sorry. Hi. Oh, thanks. Um, I uh, yeah, I was going to say I work for a, a, a never a never Trump Republican think tank in New York, Manhattan Institute, um, and uh, just from the billionaire side of the of the, fen- of the fence, it's feeling fairly disempowered in terms of like the money, like Mitt Romney lost, <laughs> Jeb Bush lost, Ben Hillary still lost. Like those are the money candidates. We're feeling pretty, you know, if you're a kind of center right think tank. You're like, oh man, like I, it's like you know. So what do we, in terms of Trump's Trump as a mass movement, you know, the, the billionaires are actually feeling pretty, or my billionaires at least are feeling fairly demoralized. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> right. No, I mean, money certainly. You have to spend a lot of money, but I mean, you know, the Paul Singers of the world won a big race in, in New York 19. I mean, Zephyr Teachout's race. They, they flooded a million dollars in the last two weeks of the election and, and, and swung at six points. Um, but, I mean, it's not... Yeah. No, no, local state... Pres- well, well, no, federal, they've done pretty well. It's just the presidential, they haven't. Um, and Because the presidential race has a, a bunch of different kind of factors, like, you know, the bully pulpit and, uh, and other things. Um, but... 
I mean, yeah, the m money, you need a lot of money. But if you're, if you're Robert Mercer, right. uh, this election went extraordinarily well. Um, again, I, I, I hesitate to, to focus on Trump when it comes to the influence of money in politics, although it played a role. But in, in federal and, 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 and state politics, it, it certainly bang, you know, bang for your buck. Um, there was a question, two questions here. One here from there. Hi, sorry for missing anything. The uh, question was for non-voters. Um, coincidentally, one of my classmates last night, uh, she's from India, and she's not a citizen. So she's saying in order to, and we're studying food policy, um, so in order to make a difference, you know, she can't vote. Um, what can she do? So I, I imagine marching and, and protesting, I'm guessing not non-voters do that. Is that sort mm -hmm. of the best path forward? Yeah. Yeah, I always like to point out the obvious that we're, we all are influencers, we're all educators, we're all influencing our circles and we don't know how that then ripples out. So I, that sense of, of our power to frame, help to frame things for our friends who can vote, but also show up, like as, as you already said, you know, that that's, that's a very vital contribution. But, and I think educating oneself so that one can be persuasive in conversations and bring them up and have and feel that you have solid ground to stand on and that's why we hope our our book because it's short and uh, and um, you know accessible to the so I, I would really encourage that that one of the, the major themes of our book is that power is always a relationship and one is never completely powerful and completely powerless and that there's that every action we make, in fact, has ripples out. So I just really encourage her to think like that, the relational understanding of power. Yeah. There's many things you could, you could do help with a registration campaign. Depending on the state. So, so some places might make it here, it might be legal, yeah. 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 You can go and make phone calls to help uh, any of the organizations that are helping. You can help the others. You know, there's many things that uh, you can I, I wouldn't tell her to get arrested, though. No. Definitely wouldn't tell her to do that. Uh, there's, there's a great quote, though, by uh, uh, one of the famous kind of Jewish theologians, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who said, Frankie, get me, tell me if I'm wrong, that some of us are guilty, but all of us are responsible. Um, and I think that, that that really carries a weight that, you know, you may not be a citizen, but we're all responsible uh, for the, the moral and, and uh, politi you know, political degradation of our, of our, our system. Um, so... You know, there's a lot of issues there, but... You had a question as well? Yeah. Yeah? Go ahead. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, this uh, rank order... Voting, choice voting. Uh, voting uh, episode in, that happened in Maine. Mm -hmm. uh, to your knowledge, did it get any mainstream media coverage at all? A. And, and B, are, are you, uh, I mean, I, I, I presume I, I'm corrected that you are aligned with the end citizens versus united or repeal or rescind citizens for, uh, united, repeal. Yeah. You're, you're, you're in line with the movement to, to nullify that decision, right? I mean, you wanna, I'll, I'll speak to the first one, you speak to the second one. Okay. Um, it got coverage. Uh, certainly not 
enough outside of Maine. I mean, one of the kind of stunning things, and when I was doing communications for Democracy Spring, I, I felt this so so viscerally, that it is so hard to get media coverage about any of these things. We got 1,300 people arrested, and we couldn't get national media coverage. We got some, but like, my God. We got 1,300 people arrested, and we can barely get any sort of cable news uh, to mention it. We got, like, okay. I think, like, nine seconds. We were sitting seconds. on the Capitol steps saying, where is corporate media? Where is I mean, stunning. And, and with all these, I mean, you'd think that someone would be covering the, you know, I mean, they're barely covering the assaults on voting, let alone the advances. In. I mean, I think it's an incredible story that we passed that one in four Americans now live in a state with automatic voter registration. That is stunning. In two years, we have revolutionized the way we register voters in one fourth. For, that touches one-fourth of all Americans. You, you don't see that coverage. So when it comes to ranked voting, there's some coverage, but barely enough. Uh, just one quick comment. Did this main event, yeah. event in Maine, yeah. did, did it happen anywhere else in the country? No. No, it was be a ballot initiative uh, in Maine. Now, it's worth, there's, there's an effort in Massachusetts right now uh, to try it. But no, the, Maine became the very first state in our country's history to, to implement this for statewide elections. But do you want to talk about the second thing? Oh, about Citizens United. What we share is the perspective that, yes, it would be a very good thing and it would be extremely helpful to, for the Constitution to clarify that, um, that uh, free speech is about natural persons. It's a right of natural persons. That would be very helpful, and uh, making sure that it's clear that the polity can set rules around money and politics to protect equal voice. We think that would be extremely helpful. We also say that to get there, there has to be a democracy movement of the kind that we're part of to change the, change the people who are in office there, who are, uh, make sure that we have a majority of people who understand the democracy crisis and are willing to, to vote for such a thing because it, it, it just, at this point, it's not possible. So, so we think it's a both-and strategy, yes. But we, don't, we don't think it's a starting point right now. We think that we have to build toward it uh, by changing the face of our legislatures and our executive, too. But that, that's so. It's, it's, not, it's not saying it's not important. It's just saying if we're serious about it, we better get serious about changing the people who have to vote for it because it takes... Uh, yeah, and, and moreover, I mean, just two quick things, but ending Citizens United, overturning it, will not get us back to the promised land. I mean, things were really bad yeah. well before uh, 2010. I mean, there there's been studies that show that the average American has near zero, had near zero influence in the 80s and 90s. But so presumably, if there were a, a change in the constitution, right. yeah, yeah, I'll go back to... Yeah. Yeah. the first and worst. But basically, the key point is that, like, what we need to do on money and politics uh, is totally constitutional, and that's public financing. That, that basically increasing the voices of ordinary Americans through public matching or full funds, whatever, a voucher program, it doesn't matter. But that is the key reform. It is much more significant to do that than to reduce uh, uh, unlimited spending. Like, that, that is shown to have the, like, most significant impact. Now, we definitely need to rein in the money, um, but the public financing is, is totally, the court has said it is totally constitutional, and that's where we see the biggest changes. We see the, a total reshaping of, 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 the right pressure, so of, of public policy, of all of that stuff. We see it. Um, so we have, we have it in our power right now to, 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 to kind of revolutionize our, our politics in terms of representational democracy, representational democracy right now. Um, so that, that's why I think we focus more on, on the public policy than the amendment uh, Right, we have yeah five minutes left. One question, one more question here. It's a great question. Thank you. 
Hi. Teresa Carr. Um, I'm a science journalism fellow at MIT, so I'm your media right here, <laughs> listening up. So uh, my question is just a real quick thing uh, I'm sure you could talk a long time about, but if, if um, Democracy Spring was kind of a, a big, pivotal moment last, mm-hmm. last year, um, what's your next big moment? You know, what do you want the press to be at? What do you want them to see? Obviously, there's all these things going on, but do you have a centerpiece that you're marching towards that you want a, the press to be thinking about preparing for? You know, what's your moment that you've got coming up? Why don't you repeat about March on Harrisburg? And yeah, I, I think that, that, I mean, a couple things. I think that every... I think it is so important that we tell the stories of states being innovators of democratic policy. It is so important that we show people that we have the public policy solutions that are passing and work. I, I think that that is just the fundamental way we get out of this notion that, like, our democracy in crisis, yes, but that we're not nihilistic and, and totally in despair about, uh, you know, what the solutions are. Because that, that, that ultimately a lot of people are so surprised to learn that there are states that have implemented policy that works. Uh, I think that's a major hurdle that we're facing now. But then there are the kind of grassroots movements. I mean, Democracy Spring, what they're doing, they're planning a lot of mobilizations around the, the Pence-Kovac Commission, the, the Presidential uh, Commission on uh, Election Integrity, uh, as well as other stuff against voter ID laws and pushing it forward for automatic voter registration and other uh, money and politics reform. March on Harrisburg, uh, my folks in, in Pennsylvania, um, you know, they're another big source of inspiration. And the Poor People's Campaign. We'll see what happens with uh, Reverend Barber's Poor People's Campaign. Uh, I know a lot of groups like Democracy Spring, like March on Harrisburg, a lot of the democracy groups are going to be partnering with the Poor People's Campaign to bring democracy reform as a key tenant of that nationwide uh, civil disobedience campaign uh, for next summer, right? Next summer? So that will be a big thing to look at, but how that develops. Um, for pilgrimage um, in 1957. That was the first march on Washington. And many people see this picture of Dr. King in a robe and, 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 and falsely identified as the 1963 march on Washington. No, the first attempt was the 1957 march on Washington, which they built a prayer for pilgrimage or whatever, and about 25,000 or so showed up. They came back, and that was under Republican President Eisenhower at the time, and, you know, they got some things, but they really didn't win the way they wanted to. Um, uh, so they came back in 1963 with the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, and, of course, 300,000 showed up, and they got the, uh, 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 the 64 Civil Rights Act and the 65 Bill Rights Act. I said that to say this. We're going to keep trying. Until we win. We have made history already, but we're going to build on that. I'm so glad that Adam spoke to what we're looking to do over the next few weeks and months in terms of mobilization. Uh, the key word that's been the common denominator amongst everyone who have, I've, I've heard from so far has really been energy. Because we know that energy produces voter turnout. And how voter turnout means that we win. I'll, I'll let you understand what we means. <laughs> right, so, so when we generate that energy on the ground and get people involved and, and we as, as servant leaders try to do the best job we can to crystallize the issues, you know, I'm speaking to something called the seven deadly sides of American democracy. I, I think that helps us to get at the core of how we got to where we are. What are those seven deadly sins? Well, let's look at voter suppression. That's one of them. Number two, I would say is voter erasure. 
Why would I separate that? Because there's this new issue, a phenomenon about interstate cross-check, where about an estimated 1.1 million people are purged from the rolls. So look at Greg Powers' uh, Best Democracy Money Can Buy, which is the best, uh, the top-selling documentary on Amazon right now. So about our insurance, number two. We got like a third of this enfranchisement. It's number three. Right? Well, we do that more than some of the other developed countries in the world. Um, and then you look at John Landry, and let's cut to the jargon around that. That's essentially uh, a politicians electing their voters. Right? So then we get to the, the corrupting influence of big money in politics, um, as you well know, we talked about already. And number six, I would say, is vulnerable uh, voting machines and Trojan media. Uh, that's another piece. And then number seven, I would say, is the Electoral College. And I was happy to hear about the National Public Vote, uh, uh, what is it, Compact. Uh, but there's also another angle that Larissic is now uh, pursuing in terms of a lawsuit. They haven't been a law clerk for uh, uh, Scalia using Scalia's argument, a conservative argument of one person, one vote, the same argument they used to embrace Big Gore, and the lawyer who lost that case. Almost case, you know, to attack the one person one vote. I think that we have a final chance with regard to that. We should definitely try it. So that's another piece. But how do we crystallize this thing? We take it nationally, we build on the movement that we had around the Electoral College campaign or Democracy Spring mobilizing 50 state capitals to push the Electoral College electors to vote against Trump. We build on that model and say, okay. We need to have you guys calling your state officials to not only condemn the electoral, uh, what is it, the Election Integrity Commission, uh, for, uh, President Trump's uh, shame commission, which is really, as you know, uh, looking to suppress more. They're not calling them to condemn that. What does non-cooperation look like? And what, more importantly, can you go to push your state officials to say, okay, we need you to go beyond the rhetoric? What does the action look like? You're either for democracy or you're not. Democracy means in your state you're going to pursue automatic voter registration. That means you're going to pursue small dollar uh, matching, so on and so forth. So we're going to do a whole slate of things state by state that we can take in each state to mobilize people there and say, we're going for a pro-democracy movement, and yes, this is going to build towards Robin Bottas. Uh, we're already in talks with him, poor people's campaign. So we can build what essentially amounts to a teapot on the left. To, 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 to flip the house, stop Trump, and win for all of us. <laughs> Thank you, Thank you very much to all. Uh, good words, uh, state level policies. Uh, you restore the, the structural power of the people in a democracy. After all, that's all it is about the people in its many aspects and many levels. Thank you very much again, and thank you for your You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.